I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus makes this declaration in the midst of one of the most philosophically and theologically rich portions of Scripture, not just in the Gospel of John or the New Testament, but in all the Bible. Along the way in this teaching, he reminds his disciples several times through, and remember to love one another. Remember, they'll know that you are my followers when you love each other. Keep love before everything that you do. And then in the midst of those simple, clear, practical teachings, there are these theologically rich sayings and descriptions of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to give our hearts, minds to this one faith, to this singular idea of faith. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of speaking and teaching and leading. But a scholar I read this week wonders if Jesus is being fair. She kind of calls him to task. She says, do you hear what he said there? I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It sounds unfair. It sounds like Jesus doesn't want to tell them everything. He's, he's creating a moment of anxiety. As, have you ever had a conversation like that with somebody where, well, you know those four words that everyone hates to hear? What are they? We need to talk. <laughs> have you heard those before? Have, does it create your anxiety level going, going up a little bit? I remember one Sunday a few years ago now when I was at the back of the sanctuary. It was a little bit, a minute or two before 11. I was behind the choir and the other clergy. We were getting ready to process and make our way into the sanctuary for the service of worship that, that day when I felt a tug on my, on my robe. And it was a nice person, somebody I, I, I knew pretty well. And, and I'm not going to tell you who it was or if it was a man or a woman. Anyway, this one pulled on my, my, rug and, on my robe and said, um, I have some serious concerns. I'm going to give you a call this week. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was like, thank you. I just forgot the entire sermon. This is great. Th thank you so much. You, does that happen to you when somebody says something like that to you? You find yourself at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering, what did I do? Why is she upset? Why is he concerned? Did I forget something? Do you, well, maybe everyone else in the room is mature and calm and non-anxious. And if that describes you, you may be dismissed. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, you, I think you know what I'm talking about. It feels as though there's anxiety bombs being dropped. That might be my new sermon series for the, for the fall. Do not drop anxiety bombs on the preacher ever. Thank, thank you very much. But this scholar goes on and she says, maybe there's more. Maybe what Jesus is saying to his disciples is you won't know until you know. You won't experience it until you're in it. Now we, we, we're starting to understand what he's saying. You won't know until you know. You can't really understand what the moment's going to feel like until the moment itself comes. I remember when we found out that my wife was pregnant with our first child, we read every book we could find on having a baby and raising a child during that first year. We had about 12 or 13 books that, that we read. We had videos that were given to us by friends and family members on how to, remember videos? You would have this clunky plastic thing. You can Google it later and look those up. We watched a number of videos. We took several weeks of Lamaze classes where you sit on the floor and breathe for three hours. We did all of that stuff. I was sure at about eight and a half months that I could write a brilliant term paper on how to have a baby and raise that child upright. And then he was born. 
two weeks later, I got up in the pulpit at the church I was serving. It was my turn to preach. I was an associate pastor, but it was my turn to preach that Sunday. And I said, here at the beginning of the sermon, I would just like to be very clear and apologize to all the parents in my youth ministry years in this church and other churches that I have served for ever thinking I could give you advice on how to be a parent. I'm sorry, and I think that's all I have to say. They burst into applause, and I just left. That was just <laughs> the way it needed to be. Or imagine... Imagine you're standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Hundreds of millions of years of history spread out in the most amazing array of colors you've ever seen in your life. We could run a video. I could place photographs on the screens for you but there's no way to explain it or describe it until you stood there on that rim, looked deep down into that unbelievably endless space. This is what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. You won't know until you know. Things are going to change. They're going to change rapidly in the next few days. You need to be prepared for these, for these changes. And then he describes in the text that we heard this morning, he, he describes partially, and there's, there's fuller explanation from Jesus in some verses that come later, of the relationship between the Creator, the Spirit, and Jesus, and the way they are interwoven together and have been since the beginning of time. The key word to hear here is relationship. John, the, the author of the gospel, is presenting for us a relational kind of faith, a faith that is strengthened when we're in relationship with each other. And it's in the, that relationship, that ever-evolving, constantly changing, renewing, beginning again relationship with the community of faith itself that we begin to understand what it means to be under the guidance of the Spirit. I'm I will leave you, Jesus says in one place, but I will leave my spirit with you. That same spirit will be there. Consider this. This morning at the 9 o'clock service in our parking lot, we could feel the breeze coming through the tent itself. It was a cooling breeze, a little bit warm and humid out there, but it was a cooling breeze. Where does it come from? How does it arrive? Where does it go? All these questions, even with all the knowledge we have of the world, we still can't exactly explain what is going on. It's the same way in the church. Don't try to systematize the spirit. But if we're in relationship together, we can face anything that comes before us. But, and there's always a but, but there's a concern here because what John is essentially saying to the church is that the church cannot remain locked in the past. The church cannot remain locked. The church cannot rely on the past. The church cannot simply try to recreate the past and, and drag it forward into the future. What John is saying to the church is we must constantly look at our culture, look at what is happening in the world, and ask ourselves how, do, how are we called to be church in this moment, in this place. Now I know that might sound like a religious thing to say, but, but consider the implications. This can cause our anxiety congregationally to rise. This can can create that same kind of sense of 3 o'clock in the morning, what's really going on? What are we going to do next? How are we going to do that? When we seriously face these questions about what is God calling us to next and what does church look like right now in this culture where we find ourselves, 
And that can create some consternation. That can create some anxiety. But what Jesus is promising is that if we allow the Spirit to be in and among us, if we stand upon a foundation rooted in love for each other, we can face whatever comes. Will we stumble and fumble and fall? Of course we will. Will we disagree? Will we find ourselves uh, filled with uncertainty? Yes, absolutely. But that's part of the joy of the journey, frankly, is wondering out loud what could possibly be next. What's true for a congregation is true for us individually as well. When there is change happening, when it feels like things around us are out of control, it can bring on that, that anxious that anxious mind, that sense of loss, of worry, of, of fear. It can send and sit and descend right upon us. I, I would guess in the last couple of weeks since the shootings at Buffalo and the mass shooting in Texas, I've probably had 24, 25 conversations, most of them with church members, some with colleagues in ministry, a few with family where people have said to me, I don't know, Glenn, I just, I don't know. I'm losing my faith. Where is God? Where, where is God to be found? What's happening in our land, in our culture? I'm filled with doubt. I'm overwhelmed with worry. My faith is gone. I treasure these moments as a pastor, when someone is courageous enough to say out loud where they are, I'm wondering too if those feelings can't also be a gift to open us up to discover some new way we can be alive and in the world. I mentioned during the welcome that I started a new podcast this week. It went out to you in my email on Friday, my all-church email. The first conversation was with Amy Butler. Amy is currently the senior pastor at National City Christian Church in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, she was the first ever woman to be hired as the senior minister at the historic, grand, and amazing Riverside Church in, in New York City. I've known Amy now for, for several years, and I really appreciate her as a friend. And we got into this podcast conversation. We eventually landed on the topic of faith, and I asked her to share, what do you do when you find yourself maybe facing a lack of, a lack of faith or even a loss of faith? She was open, vulnerable, honest. She said, I'll tell you, there have been times when I've been beaten up, not physically, but emotionally, spiritually when my faith was gone. Remember, this is a pastor. She said, my faith was gone. What I had to do was surround myself with trusted friends who could sit with me. And these are her words. She said, what they would do is they would hold space. They'd hold space where I could sit and not be Pastor Amy, not be Reverend Butler, not be the preacher with the, all the answers to all the world's questions. I could simply sit in that space without my faith, knowing my friends would hold it for me. That's something of what Jesus is describing in this relationship between the Creator, the Comforter, or the Spirit, and the Christ, and the way they're in relationship together, and the way we are in relationship with each other. 
when we make room for that space, we make room for the creativity of the Spirit to make its way into our lives, to wrestle with whatever the issues might be, our lack of knowing or believing, even those. I'm reading a book this week titled Unlearning God by Philip Gully, who, by the way, is going to be on a Zoom call program for us, for our entire church to, to dial into, coming up in September. In the book, he talks about his wrestling with God, his wrestling with doubts, his wrestling with faith or lack of faith, and hence the title, Unlearning God. He's found throughout his life since he was a little boy that there have been things he's had to unlearn. He tells about when this began. He was eight years old. He was attending a Roman Catholic church with his family, and there was a nun who said to him in a class, if you hate God, God will strike you down. Well, little Philip likes details, and so he asked his question and said, how long will it take? <laughs> she said, it happens immediately. Okay. He went home, it was time for bed, went to bed, pulled the covers up over his head, whispered so his brother, who's in the other bed, wouldn't hear, I hate God. I hate God. I hate God. He said it three times for every person in the Trinity. And nothing happened. He waited. Nothing happened. He fell asleep. The next morning, he woke up blissfully alive, and he decided in that moment, I'm going to question everything I hear. I'm going to wrestle with everything I hear. I'm not going to let somebody just throw something at me without some kind of proof or understanding. And he spends his entire life, frankly, all of us in some way or another, spend our lives wrestling with these kinds of questions. He points out very helpfully that if you know somebody who has a much more rigid, strict kind of faith, and these are the things you must believe in order to be included, that that person is afraid of wrestling. That they don't know the story of Jacob very well, who wrestles all night with God, walks away with a limp, but the limp for him is a sign of blessing that he wrestled with God and did not die, but had a new life. It's an invitation. This is an invitation to take on these issues, to look carefully at them, to wonder what's going on in, in our lives. Gully tells another story from when he was a little boy about a neighbor who told him, whenever you mow the lawn, you should always go in rows that are perpendicular to the street. This is the way your lawn will look the best. You must go perpendicular to the street. And Gully says, you know what happens, right? Three decades later, this man has permanent ruts, parallel lines, parallel ruts, in his yard. It looks terrible. But let's cut him some slack. Maybe that first time it looked nice. Maybe it was an organized way to get the lawn done in a, in a quick and easy fashion. But after a while, he didn't consider other ways, new ways, other ideas, different decor, a new way to landscape. And the next thing you know, his lawn is a series of deep, ugly ruts. And can we continue to be honest this morning? Do you find yourself in a rut? Maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's in a relationship with someone you love. And you don't have any idea how to climb out of it. How to make your way through to something new and more amazing than you ever could have possibly experienced before. Much of it comes in the naming 
of the truth. To wrestle with the ones you love, with your church, with God, in order to finally make our way out of those deep ruts that so many of us encounter in our lives. Well, the disciples, by the time we get to the end of John chapter 16, verse 33, they declare, Lord, we understand. We get it. We, we understand. We've been asking a lot of questions throughout these, this farewell discourse in these days before, just before Jesus' arrest and, and crucifixion. He's been teaching them all these things, and along the way they're asking questions. Where are you going? What's really happening? We don't understand. Would you speak more plainly? They finally get to the end of all these teachings, and, they, and with one voice the disciples say, we get it. We understand, we understand it's all founded in love. Love is our foundation. Thank you, Lord, it's amazing. The problem is they only understand it here. Intellectually, they get an A on the, on the term paper. Two days later, Jesus is arrested and that anxious mind takes over. It's fight or flight. Maybe you recall the story, Peter pulls a sword and attacks one of the, the arresting party. And it's Jesus who says to Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And this, so man, this man who thought he was behaving so bravely, so courageously in that moment, finds himself in the middle of the night denying that he's a friend of Jesus to a slave girl. And the rest of his friends, and remember, Jesus said at one point in this teaching, I've called you servants, but now I call you friends, his friends. Abandon him, deny him, betray him, leave him. Anxiety has taken them over. They're just overwhelmed with fear. They can't move. They're paralyzed. Now, Brene Brown helpfully points out that anxiety and fear have not always been negative things for humankind. It was anxiety and fear that helped the earliest humans millions of years ago, whatever it was, learn how to sense danger around the bend, learn how to, to know that something's coming. It was that anxiety and fear that allowed them to survive and evolve. But the problem is today that same hyper-anxiety lives inside our minds, inside our minds, and sometimes looks for things that aren't there and will never be there, but still causes us to run in fear to hide anxiously, to move away from all that's around us. Brene, Brene points out for us that it's learning to name these fears, to speak them out loud, that allows us to find a way through. If, especially if, we can find someone we trust in relationship with who will help us examine and see what's happening. My friend Amy, Pastor Amy, who I mentioned a moment ago, told a story in my interview with her about when she was 32 years old. She just served at a church as an associate minister for a couple of years, was pretty fresh out of seminary, and she got a job as a senior pastor at 32 years of age at, a, at what used to be a large Baptist church in downtown Washington, D.C., 800-seat sanctuary with 45 people on her first Sunday. She got up. I don't know if she said this in the sermon or if she said it somewhere in her first week. Hi, I'm Pastor Amy, and I'm here to help you change. It did not go well at the beginning. But what she said was so beautiful, and I'm paraphrasing her words. 
I learned to love them and they learned to love me and we loved our way through the changes that we need to make. We loved our way through the disputes that we had. We loved our way through all the anxiety that appeared and we loved our way through to a new and amazing congregation that began to thrive. Sounds like Jesus. If we allow ourselves to be in relationship with each other, founded and grounded in love itself. We can thrive. We can face whatever crisis, whatever challenge, whatever issue, whatever problem comes to us before us, knowing, believing, and trusting that indeed the very Spirit of God is swirling among us like a heavenly and holy wind and in relationship with each other, with our arms extended to our neighbors, with our hands extended high toward God, we can face anything everything. Of this, I'm certain.